Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of what is this show called? EMS on the Mountain. Forgot what we were doing there for a minute. Today, we're going to talk about some, we'll call it technology. I don't go, we, we would call it, it is technology that has evolved to a point where it's now available in a much more compact form factor and is usable and accessible to guys operating in the wilderness and austere environment. This is a lot of stuff that normally would not be found outside of an emergency department and occasionally critical care transport, whether helicopter or ground, but it's making its way into the woods and other austere environments. So with that, technology's cool. And Mike's yeah, all about his, I love technology. Yeah, yeah, so Mike, Mike's all about his technology. I'm Heck a little yeah, more, baby. I'm a little more old school, grease pencil on a piece of laminated paper. You, and you Mike's, are old Mike's, school. That's Mike's got sure. an iPad. So I, I do have an iPad. Just one though. Well, yeah. yeah <laughs> just the one <laughs> in front of him right now. I think before we get into this, just remember, despite the advances in technology and the stuff that's available out there, and this would apply... I would say to EMS and even medicine in general is don't let the, the technology become your focus. Your focus is the mm. patient. The technology is just there to help you assess and refine some of your, your diagnostics and help guide you in treatments. So that's my little caveat. You're a call out there. Yeah, it is important, right? I believe in school, they call that uh, treat the patient, not the mom. Yeah. Which, really it's treat the patient, not all the other toys that we're talking yeah, about today. It's, yeah. That, that phrase is getting to the point of annoying, but it's a valid thing. And so we let it go. Yeah, but I'm annoying. So it yeah. lines up well. Yeah. And here we are. All right. So, <laughs> All right. Let's do this. <laughs> so, yeah, let, let's get right into this then. Okay. So the first device we're going to talk about, and this has found its way into a lot of uh, pre-hospital environments, not just the wilderness area, but point of care ultrasound or POCUS, not just have oh, POCUS, POCUS, right? Isn't that so, the president of the United States? No, that's POTUS. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you, you confused me, but okay. So yes, ultrasound, right? So some of the things we can do with the ultrasound is the common, or I guess it's not necessarily common, but one of the most common things done with portable, especially, is the fast exam or a B-fast exam or no, wait, that's a stroke. So your fast exam. What, what is a fast exam? I think well, you were looking for E-fast there. E-fast, fast there we go. E-fast. Yep. Yes, right. So essentially, you know, these are tests usually conducted in the ED by physicians, kind of getting those, uh, we'll call them quick rule outs, looking for free fluids in the abdomen and before looking up into the chest as well. So focus for us, I think, depending on, on where you work in the austere environment. So this will obviously vary if you're working a remote base camp in the Antarctic or on a glacier somewhere at the Everest base camp hospital, right? It has a different mm -hmm. application, similar, you know, same application, but it can be used a little bit differently. I think for application, Mike and I are generally talking about today for backcountry type providers working in a truly austere environment or in the wilderness, as it were, use of a POCUS device is going to let you determine how bad your patient is and whether you need to really be working towards evacuation or not. Yep. So it's like you had somebody who took a significant fall 
maybe even involved in some sort of recreational vehicle or a horse rollover, right? Horses do roll over. And people kind of chuckling, a horse rollover. Oh, yeah. If you've ever been on a horse and it's decided not to stay on all four legs, it's a horse rollover. It's a horse rollover. And when a thousand pound animal rolls on top of a human, it's generally not good for them. It's it's not the best for the human. Well, it's not great for the horse either. Although, yeah, I mean, well, depending on why it fell. But so a portable focus device or ultrasound can be used to do that quick exam. Like, let's look at the abdomen. All right. Do we have any blood or other free fluids in there that shouldn't be? Oh, yes, we do. Okay, that is not a good sign. We need to expedite our evacuation or give us a higher priority. Same with looking Mm -hmm, up mm -hmm. at the chest. Can we see pockets of air or blood up in the chest? You know, looking at the pneumos or the hemos. You can even look at cardiac function. Is the heart beating? Does it look like there might be fluid building up around the heart, et cetera? So these, I think, are really good in helping to prioritize evacuation needs. I think a lot of people want to get wrapped up into some of the other tricks and things you can do with it, like looking for fractures, which cool if you've got the time, but if the mechanism is present and the patient presents with the appropriate signs and symptoms, just call it a fracture and be done with it. Um, which of yeah, course I mean, say if it seems that. like a broken limb, it's probably a broken limb. And even if it's not broken, you should probably be doing the standard BLS broken limb protocols because if it's owie, treat the patient, not yeah. the ultrasound. Yeah. Right. So the ultrasounds are great, right? Because now there's a lot of them that there are some wireless Bluetooth models out there now that you can connect mm-hmm. right there with your cell phone or a tablet. Tablet would be better, give you a better screen, better view. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're small, they're handheld, they're portable, they're relatively lightweight. So these are making their way into a lot of ambulance services, uh, particularly the critical care side in flight and ground transport. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're finding their way into just regular 911 ambulance systems. But it's one of those, I think, things that it's just giving you a confirmation of something you're already suspecting, right? Like, oh, they have some severe abdominal pain with some distension and a bit of bruising here, probably bleeding in there. Oh, yep, sure are. (laughs) So depending on your environment, it's giving you that confirmation of, yeah, this is definitely bad. You can use that to provide a pre-hospital transport. Like, yeah, hey, and on ultrasound, I have this, which might give that hospital a little more confidence in the nature of the injuries you're reporting to them and be better prepared other than like, eh, we'll see what these field monkeys have. And if it's right when they get here, we'll figure it out. Uh, Yeah, fundamentally what you're doing in an EFAST exam is looking for fluid in the abdomen and the pelvis, right? That is probably the most applicable use case for the wilderness. As Sean mentioned, a bunch of people have tried to do a bunch of other cool things. The other thing that is commonly talked about in pre-hospital that I hear is difficult IVs, which Mm. eh, you can make the argument for it in the wilderness. But based on my experience, you got to be really good at ultrasound to be able to nail IVs with ultrasound. It's not easy. Well, and most of the the portable ultrasounds aren't really set up for that particular application. No, they don't have... um, What's it called? Uh, yeah, they're not quite detailed enough. It's really yeah, say, useful. But let's say it can't be done. Some of the new ones, I guess, are probably getting a lot better than older versions out there. But yeah, IV yeah. access, you can look through looking at intraocular pressure for possible TBI, you know, brain swelling mm-hmm. and stuff. So there is some really good stuff. I mean, a little ultrasound guided needle into the heart, drain and fluid. Yeah, pericardiosis. pericardiosis. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Right, and so, it is it is finding its way into confirming ROSC or uh, excuse me, oh, not ROSC, confirming cardiac arrest. Yes, um, absolutely. But in the in the wilderness setting, I think that the number one thing is it's really a driver for decision matrices. Hey, this dude needs a helicopter ride right now because there's fluid in his abdomen and I'm not a surgeon. Yeah. 
And I would say this really, honestly, I don't know if, if, if you gave me one tomorrow, if I'd really want to carry it in the woods for what I do. Sure, it could be We handy. both know I would. But, yeah, Mike, uh, Mike absolutely would. I see this much I more carry applicable. I 12s down the trail, so. <laughs> he did it once. Once only. Yeah, one time. This one, I think, is probably better suited to something like, say, at Everest, the base camp there, or one of those out in the, the Arctic, where calling in an aviation asset actually is, is a serious deal. It's not just like we have an issue, we have some suspected significant injuries, and we just call for one of the local HEMS resources, and they either say yeah. yes or no, they can fly, and we do all of our prep work and we get them out. Whereas if you're calling in a helicopter to the Everest Base Camp or you're working in one of these other remote austere settings, gas oil platform, whatever it might be. Getting mm-hmm. a helicopter out to you is not just a, a quick radio call and a 15-minute flight, right? Some of these things can take hours to not just coordinate, but a significant flight time too. And so you don't want to waste some of these assets necessarily. And depending on the weather conditions, you don't want to necessarily force something that could lead to a worse outcome. So I think it's a bit more applicable in those instances where it's definitely like, oh, yeah, Bob here definitely has flu in the avenue and we absolutely need to get him out. And then you can prioritize the risk and the need for getting some of these resources a little more difficult to get. Yeah, I would agree. But yeah, it's it's a confirmation of what you believe is already going on. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I just think people need to use it for what it is and not try, try to make it into some sort of magical device that's going to tell them exactly what to do. Yeah, I agree. As you know, I've had a scenario that I could have used uh, ultrasound to look at interocular pressure, but the reality is that I would have to practice that so much for the one or two times I would use it for confirmation of what I suspected that in my opinion, it's a great tool, but it's not the only tool. And there's a lot of stuff we have to keep up with. And to maintain that skill set for the rare time I would use it is probably going to result in a degraded skill set to the point where it's not useful. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Ultrasound is one of those things where you've got to practice it and be good at reading the ultrasound because it's not just as simple as like looking at an x-ray because you're looking at only segments at a time depending on the type of ultrasound yep. you got. So yeah, you've got to be proficient with it. All right. Well, I think that's enough on, All right. on point of care yeah. ultrasound. So now that we've belabored point of care ultrasound, let's talk <laughs> yeah. about point of care AVG testing. Yeah. These are actually used in, uh, in wilderness settings in some environments i know that are used out west for like grand canyon to look at sodium levels and such there's really the big one out there is called an isat it's kind of the most common one out there if you've been doing ems for any period of time and you've taken people to a trauma bay it's it's quite often used to get early perspective on any abnormalies in critical systems here's the kicker with these they're useful but the good ones to get an accurate thing you need an arterial blood supply and It's not super hard to get arterial blood supplies, but it's not pleasant for the patient. (laughs) And that was sarcasm. It usually hurts pretty bad. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, this is another thing. I mean, they're, they're, they're quote unquote handheld, they're portable, but the supplies that go with them are relatively sensitive. The minute you take a point of care testing unit into the field, you have to care about the test strips and the little cassettes and the, all the things that go with it. And in my opinion, in a wilderness setting, again, this would probably be useful at like a base camp, mm-hmm. uh, places where you're managing people for weeks, days, or days, weeks, I don't think months would be appropriate most of the time, yeah. a while for emergent wilderness rescue. Maybe you could make the argument that it would be functionally useful to be able to draw labs for extended care 
But again, is it going to ultimately change your treatment modalities? And I'm going to argue on this one, probably not. The reality is that the depth of information that we are able to attain and acquire from point of care lab testing is somewhat offset by the number of medications and other tools we are carrying with us into the wilderness other than a bag valve mask to maybe work on acid-base balance problems that may arise or that are uh, indicated by the... I'm going to stop stuttering now and cut all of this out. But uh, you're, you might be able to gather more information, but I don't think you're going to be able to intervene in a whole lot of it in a wilderness environment. Nah, that's just thoughts? it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it'd be cool, yeah, to pull up your basic labs and be like, oh, neat, here's my stuff. But the reality is, is what are you really acting on with that? You know, it's like, I'm not carrying that many vials of bicarb to do anybody any good. I mean, most ambulances only have one. One or two. Bicarb, yeah, right? So it's like, I'm not moving the needle on somebody who's severely acidotic. Let's be honest. That's I not to say argue. we wouldn't use bicarb for things, but. No, but I'm just EMS saying. protocols like, are very much like bicarb if you need bicarb. Yeah. You're, you're not doing a lot of lab testing for yeah. emergencies. Yeah, see, that's just. It'd kind of almost be just like you said, it's like, oh, okay, good baseline, you know, and if it were for us, it's like, okay, eight hours later, probably haven't moved the needle much on that. And like you said, unless mm-hmm. you get some that can do essentially venous testing, which they make those, you know, it's having just it. It's not as accurate, right? Well, yeah, it, well, they can be. It's just, it's, it's a different algorithm that's set up to test venous blood. It's, things are a little off because, yeah, they want to pull from straight, fresh arterial blood, but beside the point yeah i don't think this is one of those things that super beneficial to what we'll call the ems response side of Mm -hmm. wilderness austere stuff certainly for people working in the austere environments yeah this is certainly be something you could have again confirmation of certain things like do we think bob's getting septic you know do we think he's got something else going on yeah these can help me confirm my working diagnosis and say yeah most likely and then depending on what you got going on they could help guide like yep He's now coming around. Treatments are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and things are looking better. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 I, I mean, a very limited I can make the argument for the value. There's always a dichotomy in the wilderness. Like, how much stuff are you going to carry with you for the majority of patients? And I, exactly, point of care lab testing devices are not cheap. No. If I had all the money in the world, sure, great, I'd love to own one for yeah. that corner case. Right. But it is it is not an inexpensive endeavor to carry it around and test blood labs in the woods. And there's yeah. a lot of a lot of factors when it comes to doing point of care testing that really are mediate or it makes the tool less useful in the wilderness. Right. I mean, temperature matters, dirt matters, environment matters, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's it on ABGs. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Capnography is I'm a huge fan of of capnography, as I call it capnography, capnometry. There is a device out there called uh, the EMMA. I forget what it stands for. I don't know if you know off the top of your head, Sean. I uh, don't. Uh, EMMA. Don't even know Masmo, if it does. I believe. Yeah. It's a little portable. It looks like a little, well, looks like a little pocketable ET test device. Yeah. You can Google it. The kicker is they were designed for ET monitoring for intubated and well, tubed patients in general. They do work with uh, superglottic airways as well, yeah. but they're designed to be adapted to be placed on a tube. There are teams we know of. There are folks that attach them to a mask, like a CPR-style mask. Yeah, well, basically like an NRB-type mask. Yeah, like a non-rebreather-style mask. Sean and I were just talking about this before we started recording. They're great. If you have an unconscious patient that isn't intubated, it's certainly a, a baseline. But 
they're designed to go under the tube and monitor. You can actually get waveform on the newer ones. I think it's called an Emma 2. If you're using narcotics, sedatives, uh, if you you have a seriously injured patient, I do think there's some value in using an Emma for intubated folks for sure, especially Mm. if, if you're trying to not overbag them, which is a common, common occurrence. This is like the one piece of technology that if somebody was like, do you want one? I'd, I would jump at it and be like, yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Like I would this love This is one. the one I would certainly take. Yeah, because even if you have to do the kind of field adaption and kind of get it placed onto like an NRB or a nebulized mask to get it up in there to get some sort of sample, I think even though it might not be as accurate as if it were on the end of your ET or your King Airway or whatever, it's still right. provide a, a good baseline, a good set of numbers for you to at least work with to, to help determine if you're going up or down in the right or wrong directions. Yep. So yeah, I, I would definitely be all about having an Emma available. Yeah, I would too. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get one anytime soon, but <laughs> I, would be, I would be a big fan of having an Emma. Yeah. All right, that's about it on the Emma. I, it's the one thing I think I'd buy. What about AD, Sean? Yeah, so this one gets a lot of I don't know what the right word here is. So there's either a love-hate with it when it comes to wilderness EMS, right? Either you definitely want one and you want to carry one, or you're like, at this point, by the time I get to the cardiac arrest, you know, three miles down trail, me bringing an AED, whether portable or not, is going to be of of minimal value, right? So this Mm -hmm. is, and with that, so folks understand, there are some very small, compact, relatively speaking, lightweight AEDs available out there, right? And we're talking AEDs, Automated external defibrillators, not cardiac monitors of any sort, a straight up AED, right? That's not going to do anything but push the button and it's going to tell you to shock or no shock. Mm-hmm. There are some very good ones that take very, very little space. You can almost put them in a cargo pocket of a good set of pants, a large cargo pocket for some, but right. And they could be of good value to you, but you have mm-hmm. to weigh the, okay, if it's going to take me 30 some minutes just to get there, the value of then placing an AED, if somebody is staying in a one of these shockable rhythms for 30 plus minutes. And I'm talking 30 minutes is on the fast side. Yeah, um, that's that's being quick, right? I think it's a limited use case proposition here. I'm not saying certainly it shouldn't be available or, or needed if that's the case. I think this would be more applicable not to a, a field cardiac arrest in the wilderness environment, but more to the, you have a patient who's, uh, at least your initial reports are kind of those chest pain, shortness of breath, an acute myocardial Mm -hmm. issue, right? So any of the ACS type issues that you could have, it's like, well, we should take the portable AED just in case this guy happens to arrest while we're already with them and give them the best shot they've got. I think that is its use case for wilderness responders. Otherwise, I'm certainly not going to carry one in my pack just for the sake of carrying one around in my pack. And again, if this is a report of a cardiac arrest down a trail somewhere, and even if uh, you had a good salt, like Mike or I were right next to this guy and they went down and we immediately like, okay, no pulse CPR, CPR only with no other interventions is only going to get you so long. Like if you haven't hit that ROSC at that 30 minute point, showing up yeah. at 30 minutes plus, and then with an AED, I highly doubt they're still going to be in a shock rhythm. Stranger things have happened. And yeah. I'm talking, I mean, the reality of over once or twice, but that 30 minute response is is the absolute ideal situation. Like, oh, we happen to be just driving right next to that trailhead and you were only a half mile down and I could jog there real quick. The reality of that happening is, is extremely slim, right? 
And again, this is for the portable, like, well, most ADs could be put in your backpack, let's be honest. But I'm talking about the small ones they make actually for this type of purpose. I, yeah, I just think it's a, it's a use case thing and you've got to take it out for the right call. So if you're responding to a 62-year-old gentleman with chest pain in the middle of the woods, yeah, take it with you because you might get lucky. But then if mm-hmm. you get Rosk down trail, that's a whole nother problem. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps we'll do a whole episode on cardiac arrest in the woods, right? But anyway, so think about it before you just rush out and buy a whole bunch of them. The reality of you using them, are they worth it? Something else you got to remember is, if, especially if you go with the smaller, lightweight ones, they've only got so many shocks in them because of the, yeah. the size and weight thing is in battery capacity. So some of these give two, some three, some more. So it all depends on your manufacturer, right? It's not like something you're going to have that's going to give you half a dozen or more shocks at like right. at a full 360 joules. So just yeah, I would agree. I'm not anti them, but the reality is that cardiac events, right? We 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 measure cardiac events in pre-hospital EMS in minutes, not hours. Yeah. The reality is that it's going to be more than a couple of minutes to get on scene <laughs> of a cardiac arrest. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but unless you have bystanders doing CPR right there and it's good CPR and they're in a shockable rhythm for an extended period of time, which is statistically unlikely kind of limited value in this one for me. I'm I'm not against it. If I got a guy that's all gun ho about carrying it and it's a cardiac event, I'm not going to say no, but the reality is I think it's going to be a pretty low return on value for the weight and the, uh, the complexity of carrying another tool. Yeah, I agree. So right. that leads us right into the portable cardiac monitors. When I say portable <laughs> cardiac monitor, I'm not talking about your Zoll X-Series or your LifePak 15 or even the new Philips. I don't know what they're called. Hot jammers that are kind of more tablet-based. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what they are right now either. But So realistically, exists. what we're talking about for wilderness EMS, backcountry type response, and Right now, I think the only one that's kind of out, well, cardiac-wise, there are a few th- options out there. There's a couple of European companies that basically make 4-lead and 12-lead ECG capability that can connect up to your tablet or phone if all you're going to do is just look at cardiac rhythm. Which, yeah, those are cool. Th- I mean, some of those are cool, and there can be certainly some benefit in having those, and we'll kind of discuss that. Mike and I have often varying yet complementary opinions on some of these things. <laughs> Again. Just having the ability to look at a four lead or 12 lead in the middle of the woods is kind of like, cool, now what, right? And we can talk about that more in a minute. But piece of technology we really want to talk about, and and don't get me wrong, if you offer me a couple of these for me and Mike to have, we're all about this one too. But it's the the Athena GTX, the WVSM. Basically, it's the, so if you haven't seen these, I think they're originally developed for the military, primarily probably for the PJs or the soft community. And so the current version, basically does four lead ECG monitoring plus blood pressure, pulse ox. And I think the older ones had an end title. I know the new ones definitely have end title monitoring capability. I think the old ones had a kind of a funkier end title system they used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is a relatively small, again, I don't have my dimensions in front of me, but if you had a large cargo pocket on your pants, this thing could bundle up and fit inside there, right? So easily packable. This of all the technology we've talked about, uh, aside from the Emma, but if you have your entitled monitoring with your uh, GTX, you're in, right? So yeah, basic cardiac monitoring. The new ones are going to have 12 lead capability, which cool, but at least have able to have a four lead on the current ones. Mm-hmm. Having a 
blood pressure, you know, so just like on your life pack or your Zoll, you can push a little button and it'll do a, you know, non-invasive blood pressure right there and pulse ox, right? So it's all built in. Think of it as your little mini life pack. But the best thing I like about this one, and this is why it was very popular amongst the military and why most of us backcountry type guys would want it, is I can put this on my patient, bundle them all up, have them in the stretcher, and then through the Bluetooth connectivity to my smart device, my phone most likely, I can see all of those data points, right? I don't have to stop the basket from moving, pull out an arm, get a manual BP, look at my little portable pulse ox that's on their fingertip, you know, turn it on wait for it, pull up heart rate and an SpO2. I can see all of this data while we're moving down trail. So I can, mm-hmm. for me as, as a care provider, especially ALS, if I'm providing some pain management or sedation while we're moving, I can monitor all of those things while we're still going. We don't have to stop progress, get another look at all these vitals. I'd say, and this is my opinion, the only drawback to it is battery life. Uh, I think mm. it's about a six to eight hour battery life. And I think a lot of that will depend on how much like blood pressure you cycle and such. Yeah. But for your average, like you know, for Mike and I, an average backcountry response, that six to eight hours would probably do us pretty well. Now it's some of the longer ones, maybe not so much. I might, depending on patient condition, I might hold off on putting it in until we get later into the rescue, but we'll see. Right. So that would depend. Uh, but this yep. is definitely a piece of technology that I think if you could give give a bunch of these to every wilderness EMS team out there in the country or across the world right now, this is probably one of the things that everybody would want to have. The ability to do your pretty much standard ambulance type patient monitoring from a small distance with remote connectivity to a smart device, absolutely top notch. So yeah, if anybody wants to donate some to us, let us know. We're, we're all about this piece. Yep. I mean, I, I would love to have them i for nothing else it gives me monitoring capabilities without exposing the patient or stopping the rescue right i can get blood pressures and watch pulse oximetry Uh, again right i'm not i'm not super duper into the i've got to monitor the vitals every seven seconds because of what of this that and the other it is more important to extricate them and spend a little less time fighting to get blood pressures and such but this is the happy medium. I don't have to stop working while exactly. I don't have to stop the extrication while I can still monitor the patient. And if I'm giving narcotics or other medications that can affect vital signs, which is pretty much all of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can even make the argument that you should be doing cardiac monitoring when you're using Zofran. I mean, probabilities are low, but it, it can have an impact, right? This is a really, really svelte system. They're not astronomically expensive. They're not no. free. But again, they fit in a cargo pocket and they work. Yeah, these are these are a pretty cool tool. I would definitely be all in for some uh, WVSMs in our cache of equipment, and we'll continue to advocate to do so until we have them. Yeah, like I said, uh, of all the technology, this is the one is being the most useful for uh, us average wilderness EMS providers. This is uh, mm-hmm. simply a good piece of kit, well designed, fairly robust, and provides you. I think all those fundamental pieces to help you trend your patient conditions, right? Even if they're relatively stable, you know, it's just good to know that they're staying that way. So anyway, all right. Well, that brings so, us to uh, portable ventilators. I sit on the fence around portable ventilators. I'll tell you right now that if we're talking wilderness, there's there's a bunch of stuff, Ravel, Hamilton's, uh, you know, there's a lot Zoll. of fancy ventilators out there. Zoll's, well, I was going to get to Zoll in a second, ah. but... There are HEM systems that use them. There are some new devices that have come to market that are more EMS focused from those manufacturers, but primarily they are hospital based or critical transport based ventilators. 
Zol would be the only thing I would look at for wilderness use. And again, we've got two inherent problems. One, they're a little bit bigger than a pocket, right? This is the thing that's <laughs> going to take up a good hunk, if not the entire space within your backpack by the time you've got tubing and everything with you. And two, battery life, right? They don't go forever. There's a couple of them on the market. I think the new one's called an EMV Plus, which is built to mil spec. It was, it was made for overseas use in non-permissive environments. That would probably be the way I'd go. They're about 10 grand, give or take. And that's if you've got an amazing contract for like a lease. Uh, if you're buying them outright, they're about 60, I think. But they are, they're super durable. The new Zoles can do some things that make it quote unquote stump simple or, you know, paramedic friendly. Um, <laughs> but they're big, right? They're, they're chunky. They're heavy. I think they're still measured in the eight to 10 pound range, if not more. Hmm. And I think that's before you put batteries in them, but I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a Zoll rep out there somewhere that's going to send us a note and be like, no, they're actually lighter, but they're, they're, they're kind of ungangly. Now, the flip side is if you have a patient that requires ventilatory support, that's really hard to do while extricating them from the woods. So I can definitely see the value in having them. The problem is that size and time for use is still limited, right? So I'm going to drop transport ventilators in the, the bucket of would be awesome to have probably low use, high acuity event sort of scenario. And this would be something on my list of stuff that would fall further down the list unless all the monies were available because it's a, it will potentially give my patient a better chance if I've got someone that is severely injured or needs ventilatory support to get out of the environment. However, it is not something that I would put at the top of my list because quite frankly, you're having a bad, bad day if that occurs in the woods. And for wilderness rescue, they just feel a little too big and, and unwieldy. And to kind of, I guess, double down on my comments earlier about point of care testing, you have to maintain proficiency with ventilator usage and you have to really be good at them. Like you can really, really hurt people with a vent. And no. So if you're not practicing it and maintaining that skill set and getting quarterly refreshers and maintaining your knowledge in that space, it can be, it can be detrimental to your patient. The other thing I will mention, uh, what are they called? The Save 2? Yeah. The military, those things could go into a large cargo pocket, like a very mm, large cargo pocket. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely um, a large cargo pocket, but yeah. But all they do is really breathe, right? Not a whole lot of options. They're really the last ditch sort of thing. They were originally designed for the military so that if somebody needed some interim ventilator support, they did not have to tie people up with them. I would consider them for like cardiac arrest type events in the woods. But again, as we discussed, like what's the probability you're going to get Rosk and then maintain somebody all the way out of the woods? Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts? I, I, you're basically, I'm in line with you, right? And, and so we talked about this one, but I, I don't know, a few episodes back when we talked about advanced airway management. If you've had to intubate somebody or crike, mm -hmm. if they're not breathing on their own or a superglottic device, you being able to maintain BVM ventilations throughout the duration of a rescue, even if that's only a 30-minute carryout, mm -hmm. you know, it's, unless you're walking across a football field where you can have three people on either side of the stokes while it's on a wheel and you can just casually walk at the head and squeeze that thing every, you know, six seconds, mm -hmm. it's not happening. That's why I think our position before was like, if you have to go to that advanced airway level, some sort of transport ventilator almost becomes mandatory. Just just the reality of studies that have been out there, like how good CPR is while going in the back of an ambulance, it's shit, right? So same thing, like if most providers, like studies show that most people don't do BVM ventilations well, while just yep. sitting next to a patient in a static, happy environment, good Lord, they're going to be even worse when you're trying to move yep. 
and evacuate patients. So I think that's the only use case personally for me. Obviously, I mean, you're not going to put a transport ventilator on somebody with a BVM, right? Um, So if you're in a place where you see regular use of advanced airways, then yes, this is probably something you should put your money towards, at least one or two good, decent ones. Mm-hmm. Even the safe two, like I would take a safe two over nothing, right? Oh, I mean, for sure. Again, Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I don't want to give the impression I think the safe yeah. two would not be useful, but. Oh, no. I mean, again, it this is the, it, this is the measure, right? What's the yeah. value proposition against what I'm carrying and how often am I going to use it and maintain that skill set? Yeah. So again, yeah, this isn't interfacility critical care transports where use of a ventilator occurs almost daily for these ALS crews, right? This is the once a year major person who took or was involved in a very significant incident, whether that's just unlucky in a built-up area of some wilderness area in a motor vehicle accident, or they took a big fall or a bear mauling, whatever it might've been. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's really, again, we can go down that strange, strange hole of advanced airway management in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, so compact transport ventilators, if you need them, absolutely. It's someplace you want to invest good money in, but don't forget, as Mike said, you got to invest that training. Yep. All right. Absolutely. And I think the the last thing we were going to talk about, and a lot of people don't think about this one necessarily, except for the folks that really do more expedition-based things or provide support to some of these events, satellite communications, right? So where Mike and I are at, cell phone use is spotty at best. Hell, for mm-hmm. Mike and I, our radios are often our- spotty at best. So our ability to communicate with our, what we'll call our dispatch center, can be a little bit sketchy at times. Normally, it's not too bad, right? We can, usually it works, right? We'll give it a 85% of the time. It's no issues. Mm-hmm. The trick is- 85% is you... of the time, it works 50% of the time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, made with real bits of panther. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, when you I... need some medical advice, like you're trying to get a hold of online medical control, or if you work with a system that has- other telemedicine consult capabilities. You want reliable comms and satellite communications is really one of the, the few things that's really going to guarantee you that, right? Unless you yep. work someplace that actually has a good built-up area around it and has good reliable cell service, investing in uh, satellite communications devices, Garmin in reach, or buying an actual Iridium or other phone that you're just literally making phone calls with, that could be a worthy investment, especially for the folks. I mean, they already know this, guys that already work, and gals, not to be discriminatory, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that work in these very remote places. They already have access to these devices because they know they must have them. Like, you know, you're working ever space camp. There's no cell service. Well, at least that I'm aware of. If there is, yeah. I'm sad and very disheartened now. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or you're working these other remote offshore places and other just anywhere, right? Lots of places. There are plenty of places here in the United States where if we, if we could have a sat phone in the middle of the back country where Mike can hire at for most time to call the hospital and talk to a doctor, that'd be beneficial. That'd right? be cool. So this is yeah. just one of those areas that you're getting into this world, or maybe you do this under certain uh, contract support gigs that are out there to go and support some of these events. Checking, hey, what do we have for communications? What's the comms mm-hmm. like? Do we have satellite communications available? Because like, hey, what if I got a call back? And talk to a doctor because I need to use, go a little off label with one of my drugs, or I got to step out from this protocol and do something else a little bit different. And I just need permission, or I need to just consult with somebody and say, Hey, this is what I got. This is what I think I have. And this is what I want to do to treat it. And just that confirmation of somebody on the other end going, 
yeah, I think I would agree with you. Let's do that. Plus do this, right? You want to be able to have that conversation and be able to do those things. So yep. something to consider is just, you know, that satellite communications piece, no matter what it is, whether it's via voice or if you're using some sort of um, data terminal to basically send text messages. Mm-hmm. And then some of the systems that are out there to allow you to send short video clips or pictures. Excellent, right? Just something to consider. And that's really all we're going to say about that. There's pros and cons, not a lot of cons other than cost and a bit of weight. Right. But I think yep. the benefits, if, you, if you're in one of those communications degraded environments, you already know the value and you're probably investing in it already or whoever you support is. Yep. All right. Anything else, Mike? No, I mean, I think that pretty much sums up the cool tech. Uh, I will mention that technology is an always evolving situation. Are we summarizing all the cool stuff out there? Probably not. If there's other cool stuff our listeners know about, I want to hear about it. There's a ton of other cool things out there, but these feel like the the top list. And uh, just reiterate, right? All the cool tech in the world doesn't make your patient better if you don't know what you're doing. So treat your patient, understand the situation. Yeah, that about sums it up for me. All right. And uh, I think you did good there, right? So again, it's that technology is awesome. Use the technology available to you. Don't let the technology be the focus of you, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, just go out to most urban metro areas in the US and just stand there and watch people and see how many people just stare at a screen. Don't be the provider who just stares at the screen. Oh, look at that. Yep. And lastly, hey, if you want to donate some kit to us, let us know. Our agency's broke and doesn't do a lot of good support. They're lovely people, but they're broke. And uh, with that, I think that wraps up this episode. And uh, stay tuned for the next one coming out. We'll talk about how to do a lot of this wilderness EMS stuff if you don't have all these cool tools with you. And with that, Mike, we'll let you finish this because you like to finish last. I I, I do. (laughs) Um, All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. I look forward to uh, any conversation or other technology people put out there. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard. Be safe and do good work.